Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. The history of late Ottoman Palestine and the changes in settlement, agriculture, economy, and politics that occurred there remain a subject of great interest for historians of the Middle East. And today, we'll be finding out about a new approach to that history using the lens of ecology. In fact, we'll be exploring change in late Ottoman Palestine through human-animal relations, and in particular, the transformation of beekeeping practices that arrived with Europeans during the late 19th century. Our guest today on the program is sort of an expert on that subject, to the extent that one can be, uh, Tamar Novik. Tamar, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Tamar Novik is a research scholar at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin and co-leader of the Body of Animals Working Group there uh, with Dagmar Schaefer. Her research interests include the history of technology, agriculture, environmental history, SDS, cultural studies, and animal studies. I think we're going to touch on every one of those interests today, aren't we? Great. So before we move to bees, and we will be talking about bees today. <laughs> I have a lot to say about bees, actually, as you'll find out. Oh. Um, Tamar, you're working on a book manuscript right now. Yeah. Uh, based off your dissertation. That's right. Uh, entitled Milk and Honey, Technologies of Plenty in the Making of the Holy Land. Tell us a little bit about the overall project. So my dissertation project and now my book, it all started with the idea of trying to think about what uh, religion plays at within technology in the say, long 20th century. Mm. So in that sense, it's a project within history of science, which t tries to show that uh, religious sentiments or myth mythical sentiments are very much intertwined within technological projects. Uh, this is an um, argument that's kind of not heard often as the, the general historiography of history of science puts science and technology or oh, sorry science and religion or technology and religion mm -hmm. in opposite beginning in the late modern period yeah so this is one of the attempts but it, what it really is it's a story about settlers uh, in palestine both christians and jews and settlers science and trying to characterize what settler science might mean in the context of settlement and how technology and science became tools to 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 enable to materialize a settlement project but more specifically because of this issue of palestine being equated by many of the settlers as being the place of the Holy Land or the Holy Land itself. Um, the project traces how technology and uh, agricultural technologies became the tool to materialize an idea of the Holy Land. So it's a um, project following the materialization of a metaphor and mm -hmm. the metaphor being at the center is the idea that the Holy Land is supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey. So historians of science, maybe of Europe, will, will be really interested in this project, I think, because, you know, if I think of some of the work that's been done, you know, in France, like on, on, on the Pasteurians and sort of their, you know, the religious elements of their movement or the mystical dimensions of their science, to, to see this theme in action in a an arena that's part of the, the modern Middle East, uh, you know, certainly helps develop that scholarship even further. And indeed, as you say, you know, when we're talking about Palestine for Europeans and Americans, it's a fundamentally like religious, sacred, holy environment that sort of lends itself to an exploration of uh, the themes you're talking about. So, so tell us about what you do uh, in the work with the history uh, of uh, Palestine. I think you start in the late Ottoman period and come up until the 1960s. Until the 1960s, so mm -hmm. State of Israel. 
That's right. So the project, the idea would, is that it uh, cuts through three political regimes to demonstrate continuity in the relation that settlers had with the land and, and in their aspirations to recreate a holy land there. Or what it really is about is the very literal interpretation of the metaphor being milk and honey production. Yeah. So the project is really following milk and honey production through different agriculturists and, and tries to look at the practices on the ground and how settlers, so beyond policy and ideas, how mm -hmm. people really try to make that happen and what the limitations that they were facing. And so both success and failures, um, if one can consider those in, in trying to recreate mm -hmm. a past with highlighting the, say, the potential that technology holds to create something that is different. So altogether, settlers were viewing this place as a place that used to be gloriful but has declined since. So we have these yeah. very consistent narrative of decline of the place it used to be. So the common story would be used to be full of um, forests and bears and so on. And, and when settlers finally managed to settle in, in the Middle East, what they found is a place that seemed to them, well, n not just empty, but dry that had nothing to do with what they thought it should be right more or less the opposite so the, it f follows these attempts to create to recreate something they thought so the, the is it's a constant occupation with what the past was and how it yeah. should be yeah happen. and it's it's similar to maybe some of the larger scholarship on the idea of you know eden within um european uh, environmental imaginaries you know the, the fall from Eden and sort of these these narratives of of decline and redemption that are part of uh, this uh, sort of the environmental or the ecological meta narrative uh, of Western modernity. You mentioned settlers, and uh, presumably most of the settlers you're dealing with are Jewish settlers from Europe and from from Russia and, and, and Western Europe, but uh, not exclusively, right? Like who are the who are the main protagonists that are involved in uh, shaping the transformation that you're that you're studying? Okay, so it was very important to me to show that it was not just a Zionist project or Zionist in its Jewish sense. To again to demonstrate some continuity yeah. and to show. So I. Um, uh, especially the case we'll talk about today, the beekeepers are a family of Christian uh, missionaries who settled yeah. in the late 19th century. Later on, uh, in the, in, I have a there's a chapter that deals with uh, dairy, the creation of the dairy industry as the basis of the agricultural economy in Palestine and later Israel, and that focuses on both Templar, uh, German, Christian settlers, and mm -hmm. Jewish settlers. Yeah. So uh, indeed, the majority of the settlement and what happened after it was mainly Jewish, and the whole project yeah. became a, a Jewish one. But it wasn't limited to that. I'm trying to show that there, if we can use the term uh, uh, Ju Judeo-Christian, right? But to show that there was something bigger in right. what was happening. And it shows. I mean, in showing these parallels and, and almost the symbiosis between these two uh, related visions of the Holy Land, it also shows how the you know. The project of, of Zionism was in many ways a European cultural project, right? Yeah, absolutely. So can you just give us a quick tour, brief chapter overview, one sentence each chapter, maybe explaining what you do in the book? Sure, absolutely. So the first chapter deals with honey production, so beekeeping, yeah. and the talk focuses on a particular uh, technological change in a particular family of settlers who decided to adopt beekeeping in order to show that with this tr technology, the land could flow with honey. 
So in the chap, the rest of the chapter mainly focus on milk production that became really important to the uh, to the settlement and to the um, agricultural economy. Mm-hmm. So second chapter deals with cows and the attempts to create uh, the ultimate breed for the creation of uh, an economy that is based on milk production. Mm-hmm. The third chapter deals with Jewish attempts to re- uh, to relive an, an experience of Jewish shepherding. Mm-hmm. And so it talks about two shepherds movement who decided to that they needed sheep, uh, that they needed to learn to be shepherds and how and follows how they learned to be shepherds as, as they thought the leaders of the Bibles, the Bible did. Um, mm-hmm. So it looks at the transformation in the practicing shepherding and how the project fam- finally failed. Fourth chapter talks about the, um, the main milk producer of the area, the black herding goat, and looks at how um, both the, the British and, and Israeli rules decide, uh, thought, thought of it as um, an enemy to nature and to the state and the, the, the gradual process of trying to eliminate this creature from right. the land. So basically the whole project is also about a biotic transformation, yeah. replacing old um, creatures with new ones, both human yeah. and animal. And the very last chapter deals with problems that emerge with these attempts to create plenty or a flow of honey and milk and deals with issues of infertility that emerged within the early decades of the settlement and deals with the uh, a group or the emergence of, of infertility uh, research community. Right. And so with regard to the, the environmental history of Israel and Palestine, one of the relevant themes here, of course, is also this tension between uh, settlers trying to um, make use of local uh, you know, resources, practices, uh, species, plants, all of these uh, in their project, while also supplanting in many ways um, lo- local practices. Um. Yeah, absolutely. And you see a consistent uh, process in which uh, settlers initially recognize that there is knowledge and, well, also resources that are available mm-hmm. there. They very they systematically try to learn from it, but as time goes by, there's uh, both shift in the ideas about what knowledge is, but and also in the recognition of who they learned it from. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about one form of local knowledge um, to move into our main discussion. Uh, this is our word of the day for our listeners. Uh, Apiculture, for those who haven't heard the term apiculture before, it's the raising or keeping of bees. And uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about local beekeeping practices in Ottoman Palestine uh, and the importance of honey in the local economy and culture. I mean, bees are an interesting thing, right? They're not necessarily domesticated, but in in some way, they're very much uh, part of human life. I'm sure you can explain this uh, better. In in Ottoman Palestine, how did people raise bees? Uh, what kinds of bees were they raising, and, and and with what exact purpose? And what was the political economy, or how was how was beekeeping part of the village economy of late Ottoman Palestine? Altogether, from from the sources we have, it looks like beekeeping was pretty prevalent yeah. and there was all there was both uh wild beekeeping meaning that people uh used honey that would grow on hives on trees for example right. but also there was a uh, a very very long uh history to beekeeping in uh villages within palestine and throughout the region mm-hmm. in fact this is uh this area is considered the place where beekeeping uh in kind of uh human uh, originated manner began um so there uh uh 
um, the main way to keep bees was through in, within clay clay hives. These was something that um, people could make or use jars that were no longer uh, usable and create two holes in the sides and and the bees would uh, swarm inside and and then there were um, practices through which to to take the honey out some of them had to do with breaking the cl the clay or at least that's what Europeans um, were arguing to show that uh, local ways of raising bees were limited and problematic mm, okay what else we, we can say also that um, beekeeping was a seasonal practice so it depended on local local plants and yeah. had to do with with the climate so you didn't have so honey was there and was sold in in markets but it wasn't an, an industrial type of honey production it was limited to yeah lo locally yeah. um but absolutely used also in uh, in medicine and for food and could you clarify uh are people specialized in beekeeping during this period like devoting all of their work just really to um beekeeping and making honey or was this kind of part of a more diverse uh household village economy like like where they would also have animals making milk and these sorts of things so mostly from records we have we know that people had were keeping bees as part of having other types of animals or or mm -hmm. practicing other types of agricultural practices but you have at least through the european records you can you realize that there were people who were considered, say, the local bee expert who taught Europeans how to do things. Yeah. So from that, you learn that um, there were the, the people who who were the, the, the bee experts. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Tamar Novik. We're talking about transformations in apiculture, beekeeping, and late Ottoman Palestine. Uh, we've just kind of set up uh, the conversation, situated this conversation in uh, Tamar's larger project, and you can find more about that project and some of the other works related to it on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. I want to move our discussion towards uh, the heart of what is the first chapter of your book that you're working on, which is uh, sort of Euro-American interest uh, in the Holy Land and specifically with regards to bees. Most of our listeners who have studied the history of the Middle East know that Europeans and Americans during this time were coming to Ottoman Palestine or what, what they usually called the Holy Land. Um, doing a lot of visiting, touring around religious sites, taking pictures and uh, writing um, fanciful accounts. One of the most interesting is uh, maybe in English is by Mark Twain and his uh, his look at the... Uh, ridiculing look. Right, exactly. Ridic ridiculing the practices of tourism. But um, some might forget that some of these travelers uh, were actually doing pretty serious stuff uh, and as, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, not just early settlers, uh, Jewish settlers of the Yeshuv, um, but missionaries and other Europeans who, who see the Holy Land as, as of course, a, a mystical place, but also a place to sort of experiment and, and revive certain 
aspects of local agriculture and uh, blend them with emerging science and technology. So in your work, you look at one such family, uh, the Baldensburgers, uh, and their fascination with beekeeping in Palestine. So tell us about the Baldensburgers. What, what were they up to? What were they doing in Palestine? Let me maybe start by saying that the middle, that this area in the later half of the 19th century was really transforming as a lot of European and North American powers were heavily, becoming heavily invested economically, scientifically yeah. in the region, having to do with what uh, changes in the Ottoman Empire and what it allowed uh, for for those um, forces to do. So, as you said, there were travelers, there were missionaries, there were also scientists, uh, expeditions of scient scientist groups like Palestine Explor Exploration Fund, who really were trying to find the, after decades and decades of attempts to get hold of this area, were able to study it and map it and become make it legible to the West. Um, so part of, a small part of these, the people who were involved in these processes were settlers, early settlers, early settlements. And uh, a, a lot of them have were very religious people who believed this, in fact, was the Holy Land and, mm -hmm. and that they had a role in settling there, showing their uh, religious ways to local people, but also making a sort of change in the area that would make it closer to what it, they believed it should be. So the Baldenspaga family was a, uh, a family of French origin that came through, or uh, more earlier, a, a German French origin who traveled through Switzerland to Palestine. Uh, and they were, uh, the father was supposed to be occupied in mission work and, um, gradually uh, left those those uh, kind of pro original Protestant practice demonstration to locals uh, aims that he had or that the mission who sent that sent him had yeah. and started um, being interested in settling and in practicing agriculture and learning about agriculture as a way to to transform the land. So basically him and his sons, and he had a big family that he's uh, in Palestine, and um, they at some point started learning about beekeeping in around the Artas, which is a Palestinian village uh, that became the center for European interests and settlement. It became in the whole region that is close to what they call the Solomon Poles, pools, um, became a sort of nod, node for America, for Europeans and Americans, uh, missionaries and others who passed by and offered, uh, it was a sort of experimental farm area for mm. what Christian uh, and Jewish settlement could mean. What are the power of, of settling in that land? Right, and, and this family is also sort of form it, um influential in, in shaping perceptions of, of the agricultural potential of Palestine uh, abroad through their publications. You mentioned this work, um, The Immovable East. That's right. Yeah, they were involved in a lot of uh, kind of what they thought was documenting folk life, but also mm -hmm. the plants and uh, the f flora and fauna of Palestine, publishing it in, in French and uh, in English. After they became... Um, beekeepers they were uh, they became heavily involved in the scientific community of beekeeping mm -hmm. if you can call yeah. it that both in america france and and in england they published about their findings about the about the the local breeds about their practices and their successes yeah. and so on so they were uh, very much kind of communicating what they were doing with uh, 
all those uh, parts that had were becoming heavily invested in the land. And you point out that in that broader scientific community, there were those who were a little bit skeptical of how they were fast and loose with sort of uh, mapping biblical practice onto present day folk practices or contemporary folk practices in uh, the Holy Land, while there were also many other people interested in uh, invest, invested in doing exactly that. There were those who who criticized this this project in Europe and America at the time. Yeah, absolutely. So it was kind of the issue of the time. A lot of people um, enjoyed coupling um, uh, present, then present day uh, Palestine with the lens of the Bible. So much so that it became came to be called the biblical danger so in part as part of their publications they both mapped geo did sort of geographic mapping and comparison of places they got to know so such as Atas or Utas, mm-hmm. the the village and places in that are mentioned in the bible but also the bees and and um local practices and uh whatever they saw so uh well, there was a, go- a great fascination, uh, including the fact that they called the local, the bees that they used, the holy bees, as a way to mm-hmm. kind of, um, well, PR for what they were doing. There were a few, or there were some that was, were critical of the, these types of comparisons. Uh, but I would say overall, um, their scholarship won a lot great ex- uh, admiration. They were pretty successful. Although they themselves, after... Uh, practicing beekeeping for a few decades started doubting these type of coupling themselves. Mm. So let's talk about the changes that are happening in beekeeping. And actually, let's start by sort of reiterating the particularities of beekeeping in late Ottoman Palestine. Um, you mentioned the holy bees. So there are different species of bees out there, as, yeah, in, as in every kind of agriculture and pastoralism, the, the species of the particular animal or plant you're raising matters, right? And this is a time period in which seeds and breeds are moving throughout the world. Um, you mentioned in your work that Italian bees became uh, very widespread. Maybe you can explain that, like how these Italian bees end up in the U.S. Uh, and and um, whether in the Holy Land, what, what, what the project was to do was to also implant modern European bees, or rather, was it to export actually the special bees of that region? What's going on here? In terms of the the, breeds. The global beescape at the time. Yeah, absolutely. So you should know that the late 19th century is a revolutionary period with beekeeping. So it was a real... Uh, a real change. So not both in, in bee breeds, but also in uh, beekeeping technologies. And we'll get to that later. Yeah. But overall, what happened, uh, the main, uh, so beyond technological innovations that happened concurrently, so both in North, uh, well, in various areas of the world, there was a, a two ex- beekeeping experts from North America who started in uh, the late 1970s and 80s sorry, 1870s and 80s, to kind of try to map different, uh, the say, global ecology of bees. And they um, uh, traveled across uh, the world where they could get to and collected um, collected different breeds and examined them in comparison to one another. And uh, so the racial terminology that they use is pretty marvelous. Of course, they would talk about the, the African bees being very vi- big, violent, and dark, uh, and the European breeds were kind of more gentle. That discourse even, 
I remember a few years ago there was news in the U.S. press about Africanized bees, and people talked about how the you know this is I guess this discourse has a long lineage back to the 19th century. Both long lineage and kind of manages to stay alive when it has to do with bees or other animals as opposed to people. Um, It's it remains legitimate somehow, but so the throughout these travels they also brought new techniques to different parts of the world, but they were really examining. They had these like sort of uh, small experimental farms along the way. And they started, they tried to bring different bees to new areas and see how honey production changes with new plants and so on. So they started with North America and to reach as far as Java and moving bees around. So you uh, eventually in the process of, well, I'd say until the late 1920s, the main breed that, um, that came to dominate um, global honey production became the the Italian bee. But when when they reached Palestine, this was not this was not still the case. It was a um, a time of experimentation, and different um, bee experts around the world tried to promote their their local bee as the best one. So as part of this process, uh, uh, at least one queen holy bee reached. Um, North America is part of these experiments. Could you explain what are the desirable traits of the bees that they're looking for at this time? You mentioned, like, are they do they want docile bees? Does it relate to how they reproduce sure. or the type of honey, the taste, the shape of the hive? What was what was the what were the concerns of these? Well, altogether, as you most as you usually want from a breed, you want it to survive, you want it to be sturdy, and you also want it to produce a lot. But also with the case of the bees, because mm-hmm. they're uh, they kind of have an interesting uh, relationship with humans, you want the ability to manage them without getting hurt is an issue. So. Um, uh, and especially when um, issues of production or um, maximizing production mm-hmm. is the main goal, then you're looking for the most productive uh, type of breed. Right. But sometimes these these things are at, at odds. I mean, I know that maybe some of the scientists were thinking rather simplistically about the ideal bee, right? They had assumptions in their head about what it was. But you see how, like, if we can use the example of the Jaffa orange or the oranges, the, the Shamuti oranges that became very... Uh, widespread throughout the world and were exported from Ottoman Palestine and and, and later on in Israel, the main trait that they had that made them so desirable was that they just had really good skins, which allowed them to travel long distances on ships. So Mm -hmm. maybe a durable um, fruit or animal um, isn't necessarily the one that tastes the best or is the most, you know, so... Right, when the product is a, as a fruit, that that's a very important aspect. Right. I think another uh, issue with bee breeds uh, is that as part of the process, the uh, beekeepers uh, started investing more in the realization that different plants produce different honeys. Exactly. Not that that's new, but also that you can exploit the the bees. In throughout longer times of the year, so they're not limited to the, what is locally. They uh, they begun doing what is called pastoral beekeeping. Yeah. So they would start moving bees around, making them be more 
kind of productive laborers they would produce honey all day long right. all year long there's a major technological transformation there the the, the making the the invention of these bee boxes you talk about. yeah yeah so not so i was talking briefly about the the clay halves that were in the eyes of european uh inferior because they used to be broken you know to uh to take out the honey but also they were usually built one uh, uh, on top of the other and kind of limited to where they were built meaning that they were um stationary that's right and uh so as i said it kind of the a similar time different um movable hives were developed both in europe and the u.s and one uh mostly by um priests for some reason in both cases um and kind of the the Lang, Langstroth uh, movable frame beehive became kind of the the best model or the one that um, became most spread. And it, its main main uh, advantage is that it can be moved, yeah. um, and and the frame within it can be. It's actually so what beekeepers use today is actually nineteenth uh, yeah. century technology. Yeah, you see them if you drive around in certain places throughout the world. You see those little boxes set up in a, in a field somewhere and the the pastor the calling it pastoral beekeeping is very interesting because right. it's essentially like a shepherd right you take your animals to different places to graze at different times sort of this mobile beekeeping in a way as something totally new uh in apiculture yeah well i wouldn't say it was completely new because there's evidence for moving say straw beehives and mm. even ancient egypt and so on but this was at least a big part of the advantages of the hive and how european settlers and europeans in general try to to demonstrate the advantages of this technology it had to do with movement mm -hmm. and with cu coupling that with ideas that they had about the east and and Palestine specifically as as being a place that, as we said, was immovable. Um, the movement of the hives and the fact that the um, the bees within it were able to produce more, more and more honey was really useful for demonstrating that this technology and their own practices had kind of really transformative abilities. They were able to move, um, to create movement and to create something different. Let's talk more about the the transformations that occur, and, and more about the Baldensbergers and their their experiments with the, with the the bees in Palestine and, and their their holy bee. I mean, what was the reception of their beekeeping methods, and you know, how did practices change on the ground? How did local people did they they start adopting these uh, new ways of raising bees, um, and did did the local breed of bee continue to predominate once this uh, technology was introduced that would ostensibly create the potential to bring bees from anywhere in the world and and let them do their business <laughs> so to speak in the in the countryside of uh, late Ottoman Palestine so it's important to to explain that beekeeping of that of that new sort with the movable frame beehive entails or requires a very a financial investment that only few people were able to mm -hmm. to do. Um, so just by moving to um, to movable frame beehives created a real gap between what um, some people with money could do and others couldn't. Uh, so a lot of the so why it's oh, I mean to us it looks like boxes of wood. It really takes uh, a lot. And you need yeah. some way to move them as well. You need a, at least a camel, as, as you have a great picture in your book of a, these movable hives on, on on the back of a camel. So you know you need some mode of transport, which is not cheap. 
yeah so already it's not i mean uh this becomes part of a kind of um a whole process not just a technological systems issue but a, an issue of a whole changing economy yeah capital you need you need capital so um we don't know that much about what the changes in breeds within Palestine, how that affected everything we said about the Italian bee, but around the late 1920s and 30s, the Italian bee became prevalent there too. Mm. But I don't know how that is related to the family specifically. I do know that the family became very known for their milk, for sorry, for their honey production um, and uh, taught uh, Jewish settlers as they start coming started coming um so the the jewish families that dominate honey production within israel today are remnants of the, the th three three families that were in touch with the baldenspark as in the uh -huh. late 19 uh, 1880s and taught them uh about their practices and kind of uh share their technology uh as for um for local people they don't write about them a lot I, uh, there's not much that we know beyond the fact that it no not everyone could afford it. They started uh, the with the British government. There were official training uh, courses for beekeepers as the government tried to really promote this new way of beekeeping and actually uh, had all sort of incentives or you can call it kind of forced people to practice beekeeping in the new way rather right. than the clay hive way uh if they wanted to get food for the bees for example sugar which was uh at that time considered um a normal part of how bees should be fed so um this is a little later on but uh it became uh a kind of a standard or accepted or state's uh, accepted standard for how beekeeping could, uh, could be like which entailed a lot of people being remaining out out of the game right. because left out either for lack of capital or lack of connections and these type of issues yeah so you can say people continue to keep bees in clay hives but the practice really was uh because of the financial advancement and the advancement in the amount of honey that europeans were able to produce um mm -hmm. it created a, a kind of an unequal market mm. Chris Grayton here with Tamar Novik. We're talking about uh, beekeeping in late Ottoman Palestine. want to remind our listeners that on our website, we've got a bibliography full of useful readings uh, on the broader subject we've been discussing uh, and some other great episodes to check out other interviews with scholars working on related topics. Tamar, I want to talk a little bit to you about the bee and about human-animal relations. Um, I notice in your writing that you do try at times to write a little bit from the perspective of the bee, right? Put it, placing the animal at the center, at least in, in, in certain parts uh, of your work. Maybe we can use the bee to, to further more broadly a short conversation about animal studies uh, and, and how they fit into the other related fields you're working on. You know, for me, my relationship with bees growing up was 
more of an antagonistic one i feel like we had a lot of uh sort were of, you stung i i was i you know i played outside a lot i would play in the garden or in in the woods or whatever and i, I had many serious altercations with bees <laughs> at various points in time i never really saw them as producers of, of honey or pollinators of flowers so much as you know my my enemies out in the fields but um you know as i got older i realized that bees are quite important and indeed in recent years I mean, there's actually been more and more written about just how critical bees are to the, the ecosystems we live in, right? We've had, in recent years, massive decline of bee populations in certain places. And uh, the study of, you know, what they call colony collapse disorder. Um, and so, you know, we're at the point where a lot of people are thinking that, you know, bees are really part of our society and part of our world which sort of points to the importance of studying the history of animals and animals in human societies and the relationship between humans and animals. I want to know a little bit about your approach, uh, why you approach the history of uh, Israel and Palestine from this perspective, where you situate yourself or how you see the scholarship. Okay, so let me start by saying about the importance of bees. So uh, settlers absolutely did too recognize it's important to the larger agriculture economy and they start part of starting moving bees had to do with moving them to the shore so you were talking about the oranges and uh part of what i have realized that there the movability of the bees and the hives really contributed to the booming citrus industry as mm. bees were able to pollinate the trees and a lot of the honey that until today is most prominent is a kind of citrus fruit honey um, so the something about well both the bees but also the, the new types of movement uh, became a kind of a f fundamental part of the transforming uh, economy of, as part of the settlement project. Another interesting issue with beekeeping in recent years that while this uh, the period I described is kind of a heroic age of transformation in beekeeping and bee production, but in fact from rather early on in the in the well, say the first decades of the Israeli state, there's a growing uh, feeling of cri great crisis in bee production uh, is, it, that uh, beekeepers are not. Um, getting enough support from the state or that beekeeping there's not enough demand and the beekeepers are st struggling i'm talking about these jewish israeli ones um and part of the issues that with changes in construction pl and, and city planning and the fact that there's less and less place for bees to to find foods um there's a uh, feeling that uh less honey's it can be uh, produced in uh, a recent study uh, in collaboration with Tel Aviv University. Um, researchers tried to promote the idea that uh, the, the state should be more involved in beekeeping in the West Bank and called it a new kind of, uh, that it can, they use the, even the phrase um, land flowing in milk and honey to, to show that the potential of those areas that are open and seemingly empty of um, of people and political um, convoluted political structures, but there is a lot of examples of how um, of how beekeeping becomes um, contentious, contentious kind of uh, arena for for border crossing, for issues of theft, uh, for issues of um, exploitation, um, and um, kind of intimately related to changes of agitation between 
uh, both within kind of the Green Line, but Gaza and West Bank. But yeah, if I may extract sort of the con conceptual points that you've made about bees uh, historically uh, in Israel and Palestine, coming closer up to our present, um, you know, you had you mentioned the role of bees in fostering uh, the production of citrus. In other words pointing to the relationship or even maybe a little bit of symbiosis or mutual constitution between apiculture and an entirely other kind of uh, agriculture that are both part of the economy, showing the, the intertwining of plants and bees, which leads to a second point you made, which is that you know environmental transformation, which inadvertently changes the environments in which bees uh, live and breed and pollinate and all of this stuff, you know, has consequences not just for the the honey industry, right, but for for the very survival of these animals, and sometimes, you know, requires the advocacy of of uh, environmental activists or you know people <laughs> advocates of the bee to uh, impel the government mm -hmm. to to you know sort of protect these spaces um, and and monitor the vegetation and and in places where where bees tend to breed. But on the other side of the coin, as you pointed out, with relation to the West Bank, animals can, in, in their ecological capacity, serve as sort of extensions of power. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you have all these different ways in which animals are uh, sort of unseen uh, actors within uh, human society in the, in the stories you just told. Yeah, so... Um one of the things that drove me to write about to choose animals as kind of a center of my investigation uh, have has to to do with the very um, idea of trying to write a history of Palestine and Israel differently, or that that might avoid certain uh, dichotomies. Uh, uh, there's a question there whether it does that, or whether we we kind of um, throw all these assumptions on the lives of animals and produce right. the same types of narratives. It's a question. So to clarify, you mean whether we just take our conventional understanding of politics in Israel and Palestine and project it onto animal life or human-animal relations. Some historians call this uh, puppet puppeting, right? Using the animals to tell a human story. Yeah, that too. And when you try to, you said uh, there's these attempts to write the history from the point of view of the animal there's always this question of how much you assume right. how much intentions you uh kind of designate to animals and whether you can actually do that so i would say this is a, a very big discussion among people who do animal studies generally and who study animals in history whether what is animal agency how you can find it in archival records and so on which is the same uh debates that people have about humans. As yeah, well. absolutely, which is, yeah, absolutely. And this is my answer uh, oftentimes. So of course this, uh, this sort of debate is in place and you want to avoid anthropomorphizing. I, w I would say though that um, along with my initial aspirations, there, there is a great, wonderful literature that uh, has dealt with animals as kind of the center of a, a historical investigation that does challenge ideas about, say, the nature-culture divide, about uh, political histories of different places, uh, about I ideas about the, um, the domestic and the wild. Um, there's a, re a real um, rich scholarship uh, I can 
mentioned some names is uh, very uh, important scholarship are Harriet Ritvo and some of uh, her kind of community at Yen Benson and uh, Rebecca Woods, who's written, writing about uh, a, um, uh, animal in the British uh, animals for food in the British Empire. Uh, you have um, a lot of work within more within history of science or history of knowledge having to do with uh, uh, animals is a way to talk about colonial history, like the work of Zebto Torici. We have Alan Mikhail working on the Middle East. Right. Um, so within the Middle East, um, this is something that I'm sensing uh, that is kind of growing. And another important aspect of this literature has to do uh, within science study, the kind of tradition of Donna Haraway. If we talked about uh, bees specifically, so we have Jay Kosek's work on bees. Um, and its relation and the relation of bees to the American military work. Um, this is really a field that is boom booming and it in fact has kind of boomed. But f so um, there's much more room to do more work in um, in the history of the Middle East. And yeah, absolutely. And and what is it? I mean, we don't we can't like essentialize about the Middle East, right? But what is it about maybe studying animals? outside of the uh, Euro-American context, which really dominates uh, some of the literature, what's, what's, you know, maybe for those who might think about also studying not bees, but another animal in the Middle East, what do you, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, as you mentioned, I'm uh, uh, part of a working group that is called the Body of Animals that, uh, that attempts to look specifically at the materiality of animals in history. And what it aims to do is to look at um, histories of animals beyond the West and, and with the idea that looking at animals as these agents that are both part of nature, but humans have a lot to say about them in relation to human lives, that there is some, something that might be different in looking at animals about the relation of pe that people have to nature, to knowing nature, to knowing animals, to knowing themselves. So uh, I think there is a potential of even challenging ideas about what animals are and what, they, what role they'll play uh, in human history if we look beyond the places that most uh, scholarship has looked to. Yeah, yeah. well, it's, it's fascinating work uh, and also fun work because you have these uh, great non-human characters that open up new worlds where there's still much yet to be studied. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and talking with us today, Tamar. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been, it's been, a been real fun. Treat, and yes, it's been a lot of fun and we wish you all the luck in, in your ongoing manuscript project. I want to also thank our listeners and remind them that we have a bibliography on our website that lists all those great works that we've just been talking about. It's also a place to leave your comments and questions and get in touch with our Facebook community that's uh, getting close to over uh, 30,000 um, human beings <laughs> on Facebook. Um, that's all for this episode. Uh, join us next time. And until then, take care. <laughs>